For many months after the 2016 election, I was incensed by the stupidity of electing a clown for president whose only accomplishment on my radar was a mean-spirited TV show. And I wrote several vignettes for this podcast, BCR, in which an urban, out-of-work circus clown named Popo decided he would run for president and out-Trump Trump. A talented actor, Robert McKenzie, played Popo, and voiceover guru Paul Allen Rubin played Popo's campaign manager, Arnie Spanksky. It was a very funny piece. If you want to look it up, it's BCR number eight. We are dipping our toes back into that sewer that was built by the Donald. Okay, well, we will get to the impeachment in the last part of our conversation with Lincoln Mitchell whose most recent book, published by Rutgers University Press, San Francisco, Year Zero, takes a deep dive into the city by the bay and the momentous events that took place there in 1978. We're also going to take a look at that strange and wonderful phenomenon, the ardent, dedicated, and at times zealous baseball fan with, if he shows up, David Arthur Backrack. He's not... (laughs) He's this not is, here this won't yet. be the first time that one so, of our guests has not shown has up. not shown up, but so, uh, it's okay. So Alina's here. Maybe Alina can pretend yeah. to be David. Are you are you a, a, a baseball fan? I'm not. He's, no. he's he's an older actor man. So see if you can we'll like see. channel, we'll channel that. that. Okay. Right. Yeah. He is a Yankee season ticket owner and uh, holder. See, that's so why I want to. I want to. I wonder how much those things cost. Yeah, so. me too. Okay, this is Bar Crawl Radio, recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street. And so here we go. Lincoln Mitchell is a political analyst and pundit based in New York City and San Francisco. Dr. Mitchell writes and talks about democracy and issues related to the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and other countries, and other regions of the world. He was the national political correspondent for the New York Observer, and has appeared on Fox and Friends, All Things Considered, Lou Dobbs, Al Jazeera, Jim Lair NewsHour, ABC Nightline, and the BBC. And now, Bar Crawl Radio. There we go. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. What are you drinking? I'm actually drinking seltzer. I know, I know. I know. I, that's that's cool. I think I need some seltzer. So we started talking before we started recording that today's conversation is a bit complicated, um, and it's tragic, and it's a joyous celebration all, all at once uh, coming out of this book that you wrote. Uh, complicated because uh, your recent book, San Francisco Year Zero, brings together several seemingly disparate occurrences happening in the late 1970s in San Francisco. So it's that. It's tragic because it involves murder and the massacre at Jonestown. So it's that too. And it's joyous because in 1978, the San Francisco Giants finally woke up and the team's loyal fans were buoyed, well, at least for about half a season. Yes, the middle half. The the middle (laughs) half of the season, right. So that was fun. Right. Yes, when school was out, which was a big Oh, there you go, there you go. Well, that's summer, so. That's right. You know. But first, let's talk about the main character in your book, The City of San Francisco. I grew up in California, uh, been to San Francisco many times, um, and I have always thought of it as a, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite, favorite places in the world. I like Venice better, but, you know, San Francisco is, what do they call it, the Paris of the West? Uh, Herb King used to call it Baghdad by the Bay oh, before Baghdad. we went to war with Iraq for 30 years. Uh. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that reference. They also used to call it Sodom by the Sea. 
Excellent. We were happy You've never heard either. of Paris? And <laughs> the Paris of the West. Paris of the West. Paris. I prefer Sodom by the Sea. Sodom by the wow. Sea. And we're, we're just the city of lights. Or is that Paris? Paris is Paris city of lights. lights. This is just New York. I this is just a big there. apple. Right. I can't believe it's been so many we years need, since we, we were more. there. 20 years? It's been 20 years since we were there. I can't believe it's been 20 years. That's, yeah. that's crazy. We have to go to San Francisco. I know. You I definitely mean, have to go to San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, what, I, what I remember, I lawn bowled. I, I'm a lawn bowler, and we bowled in the park. Like in Washington Square Park? In, no, the, um, in North Beach? No. In a Golden, I, Golden, Golden State Park. Golden Gate Park. In Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And then and I was impressed by all the homeless. There was an enormous amount of homeless be more there. impressed now. One of the reasons there's so many homeless people in San Francisco and L.A. goes back to 1978 and the passage of Proposition 13, which capped uh, real estate tax, property taxes on homeowners and made it very, very difficult for local government to raise money. And that's one of the reasons this has been a chronic problem in California for the last 40 years for in California cities. Interesting. Right. And we're going to be telling that story of, of Milk and Moscone. And yes. Maybe it would have been different if... What happened didn't happen. Well, Prop 13 would have still been a problem, but that everything else might have been different. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Because, it, because, yeah. And we'll talk about Diane Feinstein and, and how right, she right, right. changed things around. I learned a lot from your book. Thank so you. I certainly don't have a true sense of what it's like to be a San Franciscan. I've always thought of it as a liberal, you know, very um, forward, uh, progressive city. Um, but gay, you a gay city. Gay, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and you grew up in the city after your family moved there from New York City early yes. in your life. What was it like being a child and a teenager in San Francisco? I think it was great being a child and a teenager in San Francisco. And just on a very visceral level, what was great about San Francisco as a young person was that you had everything you'd have in New York. You had ethnic diversity. You had great cheap places to eat. You had all the bands and music coming through. You had an American League team across the Bay and a National League team that you could get to. You had great outdoor spaces. You had the, the water. You had all those things. But it was much more accessible because of one-tenth the size. So from the kids' perspective, now, did you have better museums here? Of course. Did you get, you know, did you have better baseball here? Well, yeah, when I was in high school, yes, for sure. But imagine if you condensed New York City to one-tenth the size. You could really move around and go and experience the city much, much more. And, and San Francisco always has been distinctly urban in a way that many cities in the West Coast aren't. San Diego is of comparable size, but never to this day feels as urban in San Francisco. It was a great place to grow up. And, you know, I was... My mother, I was raised by a single mom, and my mother uh, was a red diaper baby. So well, I, I don't know what that is. A red diaper baby. So my mother is, is almost... It sounds like, awful. No, it's, it's good. <laughs> where it, but, but basically, she was, she, my mother's almost 80 now. And a red diaper baby is somebody who grew up with kind of left-wing or communist parents okay. of that generation. So it's, uh, and it, it's heavily okay. New York Jewish. Like most red diaper babies come from, Got it. you know, the Upper West Got Side it. of Manhattan, old New York Jewish families. Intelligentsia. And, and that was, well, they weren't even intelligentsia. My grandfather was first-generation American, but those were his politics. And and so, so we came from a left-wing background. And then being in San Francisco, which certainly by the time I was in high school in the early 80s, had, there were, had a very radical elements to it. And I remember coming here in 1990 to go to graduate school up, up the street here, Columbia, and walking around the low hundreds here and thinking, my God, how did I get in such a right-wing neighborhood? And most people who move to New York as young adults don't quite have that experience. So that's also what was I loved about growing up in San Francisco. You really were in a very politically progressive place. I remember in 1991, when New York expanded the city council from 35 to 51, uh, with the intention of increasing the diversity, and Tom Duane got elected to the city council, and everyone's celebrating because you know they'd elected a first an Af- a gay man to, to the city council, 
and me thinking, we did this in San Francisco in right. 1977. Yeah. Is, like, what does it matter with this town that yeah. it took this long? Yeah, exactly. So it is a matter of perspective, and that was the perspective I got growing up in San Francisco. One of the things that I found amazing that I didn't realize, because I've been to San Francisco, and it feels like a big city. It has that. It, it has you know. It has all the qualities: the neighborhoods, the um, the culture. Um, maybe the buildings aren't huge, but it had that sense of big city. But unique architecture. It only had maybe at the most what eight hundred thousand. Well, in, at the time this book was written, it had or the time I'm writing about it in this book, it had about six hundred eighty thousand. Yeah, I mean it's tiny. Less. Today it's around a million. Okay, but it's also for many many years decades, it's been the second most densely populated city in the United States, behind only New York City. Mm. So that's why it has that big city feel. Okay. It is very densely populated. Okay, right. So a city of one and a half million spread out over much, much more territory, like Houston or something, doesn't feel as urban. Right. Well, well, one of the things that you mentioned in your book, and we're, we're not going to get around to it, so I thought maybe we'd just kind of throw it in right now. Were you involved at all with punk rock and the Dead Kennedys and I mean, I, I was, I'm not a musician, so I was not involved in that sense. You know, I, I say this a in the fan. book. I mean, I, as a as fan, fan, as someone I was goes. kind of a weird kid because, for a lot of reasons, but one of them was I was not, you know, at this moment in American history, as a young person, what music you'd listen to really defined yourself. You know, the guys who listen, and I talk about this in the book, the people out in the western half of the city with their derby jackets and their, you know, heavy metal baseball jerseys and their hooded sweatshirts, we didn't call them hoodies back then, and they zipped, they didn't pull them over you know, who listen to heavy metal, like, their family voted for Dan White and, and John Barbara Gelada, you know? And we're um, going to talk about Dan White. Well, we'll get to him later, but yeah. they're a more conservative background and more right. conservative culture. Right. I grew up, and the people who didn't pay much attention to politics and were kind of rich just listened to Top 40 crap, and then it was what we used to call wimp rock, and then it was... That was me. ...segregated by, by, by race, with African-Americans and Asian-Americans listen to different music, Latinos listen to music. I listened to a range of music. I was unusual in that I could go see the Dead Kennedys on a Friday and the Grateful Dead or, or you know, Jerry Garcia on a Saturday. So I was kind of in both those worlds, even though there was a lot of, you know, you know, rancor between them. And then, you know, I spent a lot of Friday nights freezing at Candlestick Park. So that, that took me out of the music scene a bit. But I definitely went to a lot of punk shows, but more in the early 80s. I turned 11 in December of 78, so I wasn't quite old enough in 78. Right. And you, so you spent those cold evenings in Candlestick Park when the, when the shade would kind of cover you, and you'd see it coming towards you, I guess? Yeah, I mean, if you in a day game, you yeah. know, if it, or... You were nice if, and warm. You were nice and warm until if you were in the lower deck, the shade... Right. That you were in the shade, and you could drop 15 degrees in one inning. In the night games, in July and August, you would, <laughs> you would dress for a night game at... I would wear the same clothes for a night game at Candlestick Park as I would wear to visit my... When I visited my grandparents in New York in December. Right. That's how cold it was. And yes. this was baseball. I mean, that was nuts. I and the team was really bad by people that. People are surprised about how cold San Francisco is. Yeah, you know. Yeah. The, yeah. And, yeah. And, and even now, if you notice, people, when they go to San Francisco in the summer as tourists, they come back with, with sweatshirts, not T-shirts, because they didn't dress right. more it, 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 Exactly. So you have this personal connection as a young person, a, a child, and then a teen, I'm sure, in, in San Francisco. But you also had a, a scholarly connection, because you wrote this book, and you and you uh, you also have written other books on baseball, and your study in this book, a San Francisco Year Zero, pulls together several important threads that tells a most complex story of this city, uh, business, music. We've just been talking about changing neighborhoods, gay pride, racial tensions, a growing progressive political scene that was going on. I thought we might start where where, where you end the book. Uh, and so could you read that little section I asked you to read, which I think will kind of set us off on that conversation. This is from Chapter 9, The Long Shadow of 1978. Most San Franciscans were relieved to see 1978 end. The final six weeks of the year had been traumatic for most of us and much worse for many. 
By December 1978, San Francisco looked like a much darker and more frightening place than it, than it had been a year earlier. It had become a city where political scores were settled with gunshots to the head, where hatred was so strong that many San Franciscans expressed sympathy not with the dead mayor and supervisor, but with their killer, where an entire community could disappear into the jungle and die at the hands of a cult leader turned mass murderer, and where a new trend in music and fashion was seen by many as at best completely baffling and at worst dangerous and frightening. I, mean, I, I know that's the end, that's the, towards the end of the towards book, the end, but yes. I think it's a good place to start to get a feeling of the intensity of this year yes, that and, you write about. And, and you know, I, I also, you know, my, my background, I'm a professor of political science, so I am trying to address some questions of urban politics. How did San Francisco get to be this unusual city? That's my question right here. It says, it see right here, it says, how did this city get there? Okay, so let me try to start. And, and you, would, in your introduction, mentioned how we think of San Francisco as this progressive city. I, growing up in a progressive family, felt that way too. But, you know, it's not, I mean, my, my, my kids go to high school, in, well, my younger son does, in New York City today, where everyone at his school is a progressive. It wasn't like that then. The city in the mid-1970s was deeply, deeply divided. And the, the, the point where that division, there were two moments where that division really came to a head. The first was the runoff election for mayor in 1975, where the nice, centrist, pro-business, socially tolerant liberal finished a distant third because the hard right guy, a guy named, Rudy, a guy named John Barber Gelada, who's kind of a proto-Rudy Giuliani without the charm, um, <laughs> was running that on the right. And, and if I may say this, on the left was, if you could imagine Bill de Blasio's politics put into somebody with enormous personal charm, charisma, and movie star good looks, right? And that was George Moscone. And they had a runoff, and Moscone won by 4,400 votes. Wow. And, and his votes, and his and, and map of San Francisco is hard to explain, but Barbara Gelada's votes came from heavily Irish and Italian white communities in the western part of the city as well as in affluent areas that had gone for Diane Feinstein in the northern part of the city. And uh, John, George Moscone cleaned up in the African-American neighborhoods, getting 90% or more in many districts, did extremely well in the Castro, which had become a, a, a heavily gay neighborhood. George Moscone had pushed through a gay rights bill in the state senate when he was senate majority leader with Willie Brown in the state assembly. So he was one of the leading politicians in America on, on, on gay rights and had pledged his support for expanding gay rights and to put gay people on commissions in the city, out gay people. One of those guys was Harvey Milk. Um, so he was a real groundbreaker, and he did very well in the Haight-Ashbury, where a lot of newer, more progressive San Franciscans had moved, as well as with Latino voters. What was his background? Why, why was he so progressive? George Moscone is a fascinating background, and actually, you probably asked the wrong person, because I'm beginning to write a biography of Moscone, so this could go on for a while. Moscone is Italian-American, was Italian-American, grew up in the northern part of the city in the kind of where the Cow Hollow District meets the Marina District, and you're not from San Francisco, that just means very close to San Francisco Bay. Okay. A single mother who worked all the time until he was in elected office and, and was very, very close. That was the most important person in, in his life, really. And didn't have a lot of money and was able to attend St. Ignatius, which is the uh, Jesuit college preparatory school, Catholic school, not surprisingly. Parenthetically, when my brother was in eighth grade at our Catholic school with, with that, my, my late brother, but at that time he had, he had straight A's, and my mother was told, don't apply to SI because we're Jewish. And my mother said, that's okay. Um, but the, the, the story... So you, you went to a Catholic school? For, through eighth grade. Yeah. And, and, and the, because the, it was a good school, probably. It's a complicated story, but oh, it made okay. sense at the okay. time. And it was, okay. it was a very good school. Okay. And, and I talk about it in the book. And, and the line in San Francisco is if you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, the uh, cop who gave it to you probably went to Reardon or Sacred Heart, two lesser 
academic Catholic schools, but if you can test in court, the judge went to St. Ignatius. So Moscone went to St. Ignatius, wow. where he was an all-city basketball player. He then kind of, you know, he married his deep, deep connections in old San Francisco, Italian-American, SI, Catholic, the right neighborhood, with progressive politics. And it was electorally a very, very powerful uh, a marriage. And just to go back to SI for a second, because this is extraordinary, when Moscone was mayor, when this book took place, the governor, the mayor, and the speaker of the assembly had all gone to the same one high school in San Francisco. And this is a very large state. It's not like going to the same high school in North Dakota, right? Yeah. So that was Moscone's background. But there's this very, very, get back to the, and it's a divided, divided election, you, racially, geographically, in terms this of- This kind of sounds like a parallel of what's gonna go on in 2020. It's, Maybe it's, in some it's, ways. It's, yes, I mean, th and, and yes, I mean, th without the sheer, sheer, uh, I mean, I mean, John Barbagelato was a odd, oddball right-wing realtor. He wasn't the, the he head was a realtor. Of, yeah, he wasn't the head of a criminal family, right? There's a difference. Uh, yeah. But, but so, that division was never Moscone was never able to heal that division. Uh, Barbagelato called for a recall, which which went flat. It didn't work. Uh, Moscone did things which really infuriated the uh, conservative forces in the city. Uh, we talked about his appointments to commissions, but he appointed a police chief who was, uh, had this idea that maybe cops shouldn't just be able to go beat up black and gay people whenever they wanted, uh, which did not sit well with the police force. Mm. And this is one something that really was important as, as the year went on. So, so 78 rolls around. And then in 77, importantly, the, di the city switches from citywide elections to district elections for supervisor. And this brings in a very progressive new city council, which is our board of supervisors. Could you briefly explain that, uh, what the, what, how that change was? Because one okay, was so, the election so, that was so, overall. So in, San yeah. Francisco, again, I'm going to get a little political science here, so forgive me. The city and county are, are coterminous. It's the same area, right? Mm -hmm. So the board of supervisors is actually the county board of supervisors, but they function at the city council. Uh, up until that time, till 77, it was just... A first, first, first six past the post would get in, and then the next two years, the first five past the post, and that's how you'd get the 11. But what happened was, it was just the ability to run citywide just took too much money. And as the city was getting more diverse, the council wasn't, board of supervisors wasn't reflecting that. So they pushed through an initiative in 76 to go to district elections in 77. Then they had to draw the maps. Which is kind of what we have here in New York yeah. with city yeah, councils. Which is many, it's, it's, it's kind of a better way to do a city council because that, that's where you really need neighborhood representation. So the maps that they drew, they, they drew an African-American district where a woman named Ella Hill Hutch became the first African-American woman on the Board of Supervisors. They drew a kind of radical neighborhood in the, in the mission where a woman named Carol Ruth Silver, who had been a freedom writer, who was also a Jewish woman from the East Coast, was elected. They drew a gay district where Harvey Milk was elected. In Castro. In the Castro district. Right. The Chinatown and surrounding areas, a guy named Gordon Lau, a very progressive Chinese-American. You get the point. And then in the eh, southwestern part of the city, there were two conservative districts. One, a very powerful politician named Quentin Kopp was elected. He'd been a, he was already in the board. And then in the other one, in a multi-candidate race, this former cop and former fireman named Dan White, and put a pin on that name, got elected. So right. that's the new board of supervisors that gets sworn in in January of 1978. So you, get, you go from a milky white board of supervisors to a really progressive and diverse and representative. And, and the first thing they do is they elect a leader, president of the board of supervisors, maybe the speaker, the equivalent here. And it comes down to Gordon Lau, the progressive Chinese American, and Dianne Feinstein who was represented the kind of Pacific Heights, which is the affluent community, northern San Francisco, and Feinstein won by a vote of six to five. Wow. 
well. and that became very important by the end of the year. So there yeah. was a lot of division yes. going on in the, in, in, in the politics of the yes. city. Um, and I, I want, I want to you know, get to the drama here because there, there was, um, and I think you've kind of set it up. Yeah, go on. I just want to say, too, that I bet that those um, districts where um, White came from were not happy with this whole outcome. No, they were, I mean, they were not happy that George Moscone was mayor. The district was about 15% African-American. He did pick up some African-American uh, neighbor, uh, neighborhoods, and they, and they were not fond of white. Yeah. Um, I, I spoke to somebody for the interview, Quentin Kopp, uh, who was who still alive. He's 90 years old. Ooh. And he said that, that, that he, in the course of his work, because he practiced, he practiced as an attorney while he was still on the board, he had a client whose son had gone to high school with Dan White, and he asked him, what was Dan White like in high school? This was after and he said he was always picking fights with the African-American kids. Wow. He was just kind of a racist guy. And, and he had a, some African-Americans in his district, but it was a mostly kind of a racist white constituency that, that elected him to the board. I, I think we need to back up a little bit because this happened a long time ago. Yes. Right? In a city far away. Because this is a, in, New in York, a city York, far away crowd. by the bay. Um, and, and so we, we need to kind of get the, an idea of who these characters are. Yes. Um, so we, ha we have an idea of, of Moscone, yes. of a major character in the story. Uh, Dan White. Who, who was Dan White? And what was his relationship, in, in, in a sense, politically, with Harvey Milk? Well, you want to start with Milk? Because people... Yeah, start with yeah. Milk. Start with yeah. Harvey Milk, because one of the things I really talk about in this book a lot is, and I talk to a lot of people who knew Harvey Milk uh, and are still around in San Francisco, is that, you know, Milk has become this civil rights icon, rightly. Mm -hmm. But Milk was also, by the time he was an elected official, a left-wing Jew from New York. Right. He didn't start out a left. He started out pretty, in, in, he was Goldwater guy in 64. He, he That's won, amazing. When he ran for the yeah. assembly in 76 against Art Agnos, who later became mayor, Agnos beat him from the left. Um, but Milk really was, had, had kind of, by, by the time he was on the board, had those kind of progressive Jewish values that would not have stood out on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but that did stand out in San Francisco. Interesting. Because in San Francisco, you know, in a lot of situations, you had to be more in the closet as a Jew than as a gay person by the mid-70s, right? Wow. Think of how Diane Feinstein speaks about her Judaism compared to how Harvey Milk does. And Harvey Milk would talk about things like Nazis and the Holocaust in a way that people in San Francisco did not, except for the newer Jewish community who came from places like this. So in my house, you know, my mother uh, would describe Milk to us as he's one of us. Because he was came from this, my mother was from Manhattan, but a New York a Jewish spoke the similar accent. Milks was stronger, um, maybe not then, but certainly you know than my mother's is now. So, and and Harvey Milk was a gadfly. He had run for office three times, lost three times. He was a gadfly. But when he got elected, and he was only you know for all the the the, the fame and, and we, how much we know about him, he was only an elected official for eleven months. But in those 11 months, he became a very, very smart, urban, big city politician. Dan White was also an elected official for 11 months and never figured out how the Board of Supervisors worked. Hmm. Dan White ran for office on a platform, Unite and Fight with Dan White, which is a clever if you're running for fourth grade class president. Yeah, it rhymes well. Rhymes well. He spoke about eradicating malignancies <laughs> that blight our city, by which he meant gay people and hippies and presumably and, or, or whatever and, you and wanted to mean. And, and people of color and all yeah. of that whatever that wasn't you know and, and he had you know the, the story that came out at, that his supporters kind of 
told after his after these events was that he was he'd been a hero and a cop and a farmer, but he kind of been pushed out of the police force and the fire department. He couldn't he never really made much of anything with his life, and he landed in electoral politics and couldn't quite figure out how that worked either, and was getting outsmarted by a number of people, including Harvey Milk, uh, throughout the way. And so there was antagonism between them. Yeah, they started uh, they're, out they're, with, by the end, yes. And there was an important vote that happened. Um, uh, White wanted something, and White did not want something. White, White did, did not, not want, want a home for basically troubled young people in his district. The home was affiliated with the Catholic Church. White, of course, was Catholic, as were many of his constituencies. The church wanted it. White broke with the church, and Milk uh, voted with the progressives to place it there, and it passed with a six-to-five vote. And Dan White was such a clever politician that he, he responded by punishing Dan uh, Milk by not voting for the gay rights bill, which passed 10 to 1. Right. So he didn't need Dan White's vote on that thing. Yep. Can you describe the events of that day on November 27th, 1978? So, so to backtrack just a little bit, mm-hmm. in early November, Dan White, because he couldn't make enough money and he didn't understand politics, resigns from the Board of Supervisors. He needed the money, and he was going to run his family's potato stand, which they had got, which he had secured through less than entirely kosher means on the new development what, called, what, called the, Pier 39. What the heck 39. is a potato stand? Like they sell like a baked potato. We used to be like with sour cream and, I don't know, bacon bits or something, or French oh. fries, you know, just all kinds of potato products. That was it, the potato but stand. But at Pier 39, which was like one of these South Street seaport type places. Oh, it's okay, where okay. tourists would yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and, and, then, and then as soon as he resigned, his supporters, not in the district, but the real estate community and the police, because there was a, a bill coming up in the Board of Supervisors about whether or not the police would have to integrate. And they wanted Dan White's no vote on that. So oh. they came to him and they said, you've got to get back in, back on the board so we can count on your vote. And he said, okay. And he went to, to Moscow, and there were negotiations. In the meantime, as this is going on, Jonestown is happening. Like, this, this, this overlap is happening, right? So Moscone has his mind elsewhere. But Moscone, and I talked to people around, and this, this is where the film gets it wrong, but I talked to people who are very close to Moscone. And they said, He's, and, and, and one of his top aides said to me, Moscone would have to have been an idiot to reappoint Dan White because he had the opportunity to get a progressive and get the majority on the board. And George Moscone was not an idiot. He was never going to appoint Dan White. Dan White, that, that, the, Sunday the 26th, that night, is kind of freaking out, doesn't know what to do, decides he's going to go see Moscone and get his job back, calls Quentin Cop to discuss this. Cop says, yes, you should do that. He goes in to see the mayor. And, and, and Moscone, being an old-school politician, among other things, says, oh, come into my, like, my office, my private office, tries to offer him a drink, and he uh, shoots him in the head. Dan White shoots George Moscone in the head, walks down the hall, or maybe he reloads, I don't know, and empties out the, the, the gun in, in the head of, of Harvey Milk. At which, and, 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 and then the, uh, the doctor's daughter, Diane Feinstein, who, who knew a little bit about medicine, comes in and finds the body. And then she announces it to the people of San Francisco. And then uh, Dan White turns himself in, and the police radio starts playing the Notre Dame fight song and Danny Boy. This was, th- this was not some one guy freaking out. This was reflected the deep, deep tensions in the right. city at that time. Right. Okay, and the next step, Dan White goes on trial. Well, that's in May. The, 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 I know it's, ne- it's 79, it's, right? It's 79, but I think it's significant. He gets a very, very light sentence. Gets it. How does that happen? Well, and, and, and it all comes into this Twinkie defense. It's in my view, the, the reason White got the sentence, the lab particular sentence, which was about seven years he ended up. He's out of jail by 85. Was, yeah, and then he killed himself in 86. But uh-huh. Dan White, um, the prosecutors wanted the death penalty. 
So they wanted a conservative jury that would be pro-death penalty. But oh. then they got the conservative jury uh -oh. that was anti-gay. Yeah. And it is my view, and I've talked to people who are attorneys who know this better than I do, who, who concur that had he just shot Moscone, he would have gotten a longer sentence. And that really tells you how, juror, how jurors valued a gay life in 1978 in San Francisco. In other words, by shooting the gay man, Harvey Milk, he got less of a sentence than if he just had shot the straight That's mayor. That's disgusting. And it is hor horrific. And, and many people, many gay people in San Francisco reacted exactly as you did, and basically they rioted. And, and the punks came down from the Mab in North Beach and joined them. And this was a extraordinary moment. I mean, they were take, tearing down phone poles and turning over police cars. I mean, it was a violent, angry moment. Were you 11, and you were 11 years old. Do you remember that? I did not go. No, I, I wouldn't <laughs> imagine that you had gone, but do you remember the, the you remember it? Do you remember what I remember cards? about that was that the fellow, my classmates at my Catholic school, many of them came from homes where Dan White was considered, you know, a guy who led an exemplary life and made one mistake. And we heard that in the classroom and in the schoolyard. And we came home and told my mother, my mother, who said, you guys are crazy. Like, this guy should go to jail for the rest of his life. He did a terrible thing. So, so I remember that and, and this moment of feeling like I'm really in a different world than a lot of the other people in, the, in my school and in my, in my social world. Right. Um, there, there was a movie made yes. on, on this, uh, Milk, and I, I think it didn't really work. I mean, Sean Penn was really good and Josh Brolin was played. very good. Played, I mean, it was, it was very good, but it, was, it wasn't quite dramatic for me because it kind of came out of this minor figure who, it's like, was stupid, and it's like he was doing something out of the moment, and... Yeah, I mean, and, and, they, and the, mov the movie suggests that Milk had to put the arm on Moscone to not reappoint White. In the movie, there's a scene where... To Milk, create a bigger drama yeah, about it. Yeah, but, but Moscone was never going to reappoint Dan White. Yeah. And he actually, the morning of the, uh, of the assassination, he was preparing a press conference. There was somebody where he was going to announce White's successor, a guy named Don Haranzi, who Feinstein had actually put on the board later. Yeah, but but it's but but Milk could have been talking to Moscone about not. Sure, but yeah. he didn't need to. Right. Yeah, Moscone I was not going to do it. They were all on the same page. Yeah. Right. As was Carl Ruth Silver, who was next on the list. Carl Ruth Silver and Willie Brown were on the list of people that George Moscone, or excuse me, Dan White was going to assassinate, but he wasn't able to get to them. <sighs> so so here we have this really minor figure who eventually killed himself. Yes. Harvey Milk was not in politics, just local politics even. For very long at Not all. Not in national politics, But right. his name, his, um, you know, has, has grown. Yes. I mean, right now in San Francisco Airport, there is a huge um, uh, panel of pictures. It's the Harvey Milk Terminal now, yes. Okay. It's, oh, that's what it is? Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. I, I, I just know someone who just went through there, and she said it was this huge, it was huge photographs of Harvey Milk. What, what is his legacy? Well, his legacy is extraordinary. And, and he did only serve 11 months, but he was a... I mean, no one thought when Harvey Milk got on the board of supervisors that he was going to be that good of a politician. Mm -hmm. And he was. And there was another piece of his legacy, which is that shortly before he was killed, so on, uh, let's say, the November 7th, was an election where the state um, defeated a very anti-gay proposal called Proposition 6, which would have made it legal to fire any teacher in the state for suspected of being gay. Wow. So thousands of gay teachers would have lost their jobs and their livelihoods. So people... So, and Milk was the most visible politician campaigning up and down the state, debating this moron John Briggs who had supported it, uh, saying no on six. So when Proposition 6 failed, there were a lot of people who got credit for defeating it, including Ronald Reagan, 
who wrote an opinion piece against it. And in the 70s in California, if Ronald Reagan and Jerry Brown agreed on something, it was going to happen. Um, but that was, so Hard Milk was becoming more of a national figure. And this was a time where there were, there were, you know, if you were a gay person anywhere, you looked at, at Harvey Milk, and who knew he was going to be such an eloquent speaker and all of that? So that's, I think, part of the legacy also. But he is the, the godfather of gay politics in America. Yeah. I mean, you would yeah. get attention. It is a major city. San Francisco yes. was a major city. He was the first gay man to be But to make elected. that kind of impact in that little amount of time. Yes, it, it, it is and a And where would he have gone if he had not... Well, come across this mad guy. Mad well, what, what would have happened, we, likely, is that Moscone would have won a very narrow re-election victory in 79. He was already declared his candidacy over Quentin Kopp, and we can never know this. And Harvey Milk likely would have, people were thinking, this is the guy who's next, and we're going to have a breakthrough, the first gay mayor of a major American city. Yeah. And if you'd had, you know, eight years of Moscone, eight years of Milk, the 80s look very different, and San Francisco today looks very different than, right. than when you had Diane Feinstein. Well, we got instead. with Diane Feinstein. Right. who was more pro-business. She was liberal. Yeah, she was. But, she, but it was a totally different kind of approach to how to run the city. Right, and also, but, but, but in, in fairness to Dianne Feinstein, a totally different approach than what John Barbara Gelada would have done. I mean, she married the social liberalism. You know, she was, in some respects, the Bloomberg approach to governance here in New York is Dianne Feinstein. There you go. That's okay. All right. So about a week before the murder of Milk and Moscone on uh, November 18th, 900 people committed mass suicide in northwestern Guyana. The leader of the People's Temple, Jim Jones, had talked his followers into killing themselves. How was Jim Jones involved in San Francisco politics? Well, I'm not, I just want to push back a little bit because I don't like to use, I don't believe they killed themselves. I believe they were killed. Okay. Um, it was kind of, when, when you're forced yeah, to drink the Kool-Aid at gunpoint, you're not killing yourself. Right, right, right. Um, Jones, you know, was, had, was, came out of kind of f the odd fundamentalist Christian Midwest, but ended up after a long, circuitous journey in San Francisco in the early 70s, and was, you know, one of many kind of radical preacher types, committed to civil rights, to left-wing politics. He was white. Many of the others were African-American. But he had a very good reputation. I mean, people, he was, he was a very bad guy by this point, and if you scratch on the surface, you could see it. But he, you know, people on the left and the right in, in San Francisco and California politics were saying good things about him. And I, and I quote this extensively in the book, you know, police chiefs in L.A. and this kind of thing. But he had played a role in Moscone's election in 75. He had supported Moscone. He had sent, you know, volunteers. According to Moscone's campaign people with whom I spoke, they were useless because they were not, they, you could only use them in some neighborhoods. They wouldn't really know what they were doing. But Jones then wanted a, something back. And he, I went to do the research, I found all these letters he wrote to Moscone saying, I want this position or that position and asking for jobs for people in his, um, you know, in his temple. I, can this person... And when you cross-reference it, many of those people ended up dying in, in Jonestown. Cause they, hmm. So he ended up being chair of the Housing Authority, position he held till about early, mid-77, when he left to join his, his people in Guyana, right. in Jonestown. Mm -hmm. Right. So how, how, did, um, how did this um, event affect the people of San Francisco? I mean, this happened when you were young. The Jonestown? Yeah. It was... It was... It became, you know, Jonestown is this kind of global event, this national tragedy, but hit San Francisco very hard. The headquarters had been in San Francisco. Hundreds of the people who killed there, were killed in Jonestown were San Franciscans, right? Particularly coming out of the African-American community in the Bayview-Hunters Point and the Fillmore Western Edition uh, neighborhoods. The people's, the people's Temple's physical building survived kind of abandoned until 1989 when it, when it was damaged in the earthquake and it's now a post office. So, and I knew people who, you know, they, there was a youth baseball team. They, you know, I knew people who played baseball against the People's Temple growing up, right? 
if you go back and look at the photos, and I have one in the book, you see a boy wearing a San Francisco Giants hat. And if you look closely and are as kind of nutty a baseball fan as I am, it's from Cap Day, because you can tell by the way it's cut. I was at that game. So it was, this was, nobody, everybody was within, particularly if you, unless a few people out in the far western neighborhoods were within one or two degrees of separation from someone who lost their life in Jonestown. The city was devastating. People looked around and said, I'm out of here. This is, this is freaking me out too much. People left the city. Yeah, that's what people told me. I, I didn't leave the city, but that's what I was told by people who were there. Yeah. And, and within weeks, the right, in National Review, places like that, began to tell this kind of morality tale about the excesses of the 60s. So it became this kind of attack on the city as well. And that's why it's kind of crept into right-wing lore that Jim Jones helped George Moscone steal that 1975 election. Now, I, I worked in elections all over the world, and when you actually go back and look at the data, it's not a defensible position, but it's a great right-wing soundbite, and you still hear it. It's a good narrative. Amazing. It's a good narrative. It's, 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 it's an true, effective narrative. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it's well, always I, about the narrative. Our yeah. Republicans' friends don't necessarily need truth in their narratives. No, no, no. no we it's go. not necessary. This is Bar Crawl Radio. We're recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar across the street from the mortuary, as you can see right across the street, and down the block from one of the most beautiful parks in the world, Central Park. We're talking with Lincoln Mitchell, and in a few minutes we're going to be talking with actor David Backrack about uh, politics and baseball in San Francisco, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back, uh, and I think it's about time after we've... Uh, there's, there's much more to the story, Lincoln, than, than that, and, and I, I urge people to, um, to get your book, uh, San Francisco uh, Year Zero, uh, there's more to the title than that. It just came out, uh, Rutgers University Press. It's a whole education about that, and I appreciate your, your being here. But I think it's about time we focused on baseball. And we're going to bring in David Arthur Backrack into the conversation. Thank you very much. I'll Welcome. I'll turn on your microphone. There, there you go. Hi, how you doing? What, hey. what, are, you, what are you drinking there, David? Uh, this is... Uh, this is the current Corson Donk Christmas Ale. Ah, the Christmas Ale. Oh, we didn't yeah. talk about oh. what you're drinking, Alan. Yeah, I know. I, I got it here. It's a Flying Dog Canine Winter Wonder. Yeah, and Alina's drinking the same thing. It's kind thing. of toasty and... Uh, it's warming you up? It's, it, it is warming me up, and yeah. And I'm drinking a Tito's Martini, and right. funny, it's warming me up, too. So let, let me say a little bit about uh, David Backrack. Most recently appeared in the Hudson Warehouse Theater production of... The Three Musketeers, 20 Years Later, and The Man in the Iron Mask. And by the way, we saw all of them. Oh, thank uh, you so being, much. Being up, well, you, were, you were terrific. The, the whole production was terrific. The whole series. Beautiful of, plays. Of, of, yeah, they were wonderful plays. David has appeared in many stage productions, including Refuse at Gemini Collision Work Works and Three Sisters at Obliv Oblivious Volcano. David, uh, as well, has been in various roles in TV and film and was an announcer for the NPR affiliate WNUC, and now he's featured on the podcast uh, Life with Althar. That's it, Althar. Althar. Life, Life with Althar. Althar. So look it up. I, I know nothing about it, but I'm going to look it up after the... We're going to find uh, out. So we're going to be um, talking a bit about baseball now. So Lincoln, let's start with you. Your book, San Francisco Year Zero, also looks at San Francisco Giants, who after years of floundering signed on Vita Blue... And there was other players in 1978, that you talked talk about, zero. who was, who was it, like the great pitcher of 1978, and for a while seemed to be making a bid for the National League pennant mid-season, 
Why include a baseball story well, in a story about milk and how does that work? White well, well, several reasons down. here. First, for me, if I write like. I can't imagine San Francisco in 1978, even with the Moscone and the assassinations. For me, it was always about the Giants. And the, now, now, so what I had to do was say, is that just me? And to some extent, yeah, I'm a little nuts when it comes to baseball, but there's more to it than that. This 1978 team, to put this in, in, in perspective, the Giants traded Willie Mays midway through the 72 season. From that point through 77, they were a terrible team. They frequently drew six or 700,000 people a year. In January of 76, when Moscone's about to take office, they are sold and gone to Toronto. Done deal. Uh, a local businessman named Bob Lurie comes in the last minute, saves the team. By 78 spring training, the rumors, they're leaving, they're going to play half their games in Oakland, they're going to Denver, etc., etc. 78 team draws 1.7 million. They A million more fans than the year before. They're in first place most of the season. It's the first good team without Willie Mays ever in San Francisco Giants history. And that is paradigm shifting for San Francisco. This team can be ours without this, this superstar who is from New York. But the real reason I included it is that we didn't talk too much about Feinstein in 78. But Diane Feinstein's now been in the U.S. Senate forever. I um, mean, you know, she's the ranking minority member on, on, on the committee we, we, we saw this week. But, but her defining moment, her career-making moment, was that day and the week that followed when she held the city together. Because it really, between the Jonestown and the assassinations of the city, we didn't know if we would make it. The dog that didn't bark was the Giants didn't leave. And if the Giants had had a bad season in 78, they very likely would have been gone. And I think those three things happen and the city doesn't make it. And it looks very, very different today. It's all very complex and all laced together. I love the way you describe that. I mean, I, I, I see it now. I, I absolutely see it. Uh, the city needed the Giants to do They needed a distraction. Something. Yes, and, and if the year had ended October 31st, it would have been a great year because of the Giants. Like, that would have been the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like this, this, the, 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 the people needed something. Well, and remember, you know, we don't, want to, we don't want to make it be too cute here. The season, ended, right, okay. the, the season ended in early October. Right, right. The, the year didn't seem to go... It was a normal year till it wasn't in November. Right. But it was the story for the first part of the year. And, you know, I've been in countries when the governments have been overthrown. And one of the most extraordinary things about being in a country when that happens is if you're three blocks away from the center of the capital, it's a normal day. And I wanted to capture how even in these tumultuous times, you know, baseball happens. This is where people's, this is where people's minds are. You know, the mayor, Moscone, spent a lot, at one point he had a, he started a, a, uh, an effort to have Willie McCovey on the All-Star, you know, written on the All-Star team. He, he referred to William McCovey as a San Francisco institution like the Golden Gate Bridge or the cable cars. It was, the Giants were part of the fabric of the city that, that year. Can, can I say, I think the sport of baseball would do that in a way that other sports would not. That, I'm not getting any argument for me about that. That, that cohesive I'm, I'm not thing. sure that's entirely David. true. I do think that sports do tend to draw us together, and they offer us a neutral platform. No matter what you may think of the person you're speaking to, if you're talking about sports, you can generally find some area of agreement or even spirited disagreement without calling names. Yeah. So we know you, David Bachrock. You are a Yankee fan. That's who's speaking right now. Avid Welcome. Avid Yankee and fan. First, we want to know how much do those season Yankee tickets cost? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'll tell you, uh, for a 12-game subscription, I pay just about two grand, 
And uh, that doesn't for two sound seats. bad, honey. For two, so for two, for two seats. seats. Yeah. But wait, where, where are they? Are they, are they over first base or uh, actually uh, just over third base and right. about the third tier? So you get a great. That's great not view. bad at all. Right. Not bad at all. I'm finding I can't if I sit there in that area. I don't see the ball come off the bat as well anymore. Ooh, well, I see it. In fact, I've caught two foul balls in the Good last for you. Years. Wow. Yeah. One Good. off the bat of Aaron Judge and the other off, oh. of, off a player. Nice. Uh, the other off Did you get him to sign it? Of, uh, <laughs> no? no? I got no. a polo. Yeah, I guess you're going to have to wait. 25 up. years ago at Yankee Stadium. I, so I, I know <laughs> I have two, two, two years in a row. Um, so, yeah, the, sports can unify uh, 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 any group of people and uh, uh, give you a, a neutral ground. So how did, how did your love affair with the Yankees begin? Oh, gosh. I moved to New York in 1980. I'd always been a baseball fan. And an American League fan, I guess I should confess, I was a Red Sox fan, having grown up in New England. <gasps> oh. What? And you yes. became a Yankee fan? Uh, How I did that happen? Eight, you were a Red Sox fan. Yeah, so uh, you were on the wrong right. side of that, uh, that dramatic that, one-game playoff. That's absolutely correct. You know, I wanted to ask you something about... Uh, uh, I did. I did a little research prior to coming here. Um, <laughs> forgive me, but the Giants finished third. That's that right. Year. That's why the subtitle is a third-place baseball team. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, you know, yeah. Sure. They signed Vita Blue at the end. They traded of for his Vita. They traded. No, Vita Blue started the All-Star game for the National League that year. Finished third in the. He was. A, he was third in the Cy Young Award. He had a great year. Right. His career ended a couple of years later, 1986, something like. Yeah. That. Yeah. He finished, yeah. came back to the Giants in 85, 86. Yeah. I mean, this. One, yes, remember that between, you know, the Giants lost to the Pirates in the 71 NLCS and then to the Cardinals in 87 in the NLCS. In that 16-year period, they were pretty bad. They were pretty bad. Third no. place was a big deal, right? Yeah. I mean, and they had gotten there by winning 40-something games by one run, which right. is pretty impressive. And, I mean, and, it, and baseball isn't over. It was over. With the, with the Dodgers. You see, Becky, this is so, what happens when you get, you get two baseball, baseball So it energizes. I mean, the, 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 uh, they'll keep going for a what while. So. What's amazing to me is that when you fa meet fans, you know, in their 50s now, that 78 team is up there with the 2010 team. I gave a talk in San Francisco in, in November, early November, where someone came up to me and said, my favorite Giants moment of all time, he's got a couple of years older than me, a lifelong you know, local guy, Giants fan, was Mike Ivey's pinch hit Grand Slam, which I describe in the book in, in 78. In 78, it, yeah. it captured the city in a way that most third-place teams don't, and I tried to kind of write about that in the book, partially because 79, they were bad again, right? And, they, and then 82, they had another, you know, there were these, those, there was a bad team for a long time. They captured the city. It was that, it wasn't about Willie Mays anymore. And that, on the one hand, you know, Willie Mays, you know, without Willie Mays, you'd obviously given the choice, you'd have Willie Mays rather than not. But it was younger players, and it was forward-looking, and it was about San Francisco for the first time. And Willie McCovey, who was way over, he'd been a comeback player of the year in 77, an off year in 78, and was never really a star again, was there who brought that sense of history. So it was, it was for younger fans of the time, it was the first time we could enjoy the Giants without being told, it's too bad you missed Willie Mays. Well, this is another aspect of baseball that I appreciate, I think you do too, is that it crosses generations. So it's wise, it's a good idea for any team to have a few veterans right, on Right, to bring board. back a Willie McCovey. Exactly. Or in the, the Yankees' case, C.C. Sabathia. That's right. Or uh, Brett Gardner, who they re-signed today. That's terrific. That was a good uh, move. Awesome. Oh, that makes me That happy. was a good move. This is uh, news. So oh, yes. 12, one year oh, yes. breaking one, news here tonight. He is my favorite Yankee player. And he's and been doing well. Dollars. And they need, someone's got to play center field. Like, he's the opening day center fielder. That was, a, I think, a very smart move. So yeah. wait. I was pleased about so that. So David, David, let's get back. These major famous rivalries, 
Giants and Los Angeles, Yankees and Boston. How did you come from being a Boston Red Sox fan to being a Yankee fan? How did um, that work? I moved to New York. Okay. And I embraced. <laughs> and you New wanted York. to survive. Well, <laughs> in part. And um, you wanted to go to a baseball game. It's much more dangerous game. to be a Yankees fan in New England than a Red Sox fan here. I think that's true. And if you go to New England, it's hard as heck to find the Yankees on radio, even. But eventually, wow. you can. But you well, have the internet. I mean, now. Well, no. that's true. Right. And what does it feel like when your team? When you know Giants beat LA or Yankees beat the Red Sox, what's the feeling of this ardent fan? That tomorrow's going to be another game, which yeah. is something I wanted to pick up on what Lincoln said. You know, uh, one of the wonderful things about baseball is that on any given night or day, any team can beat any other team. Right. And um, frequently will. And frequently will. <laughs> and it doesn't really... So you can look at all... The, you can talk about all the stats you want. You can right. look at the averages. That's what you my can son does. Go up and down the, the, the board, and then you go to the game, and at the end of the first inning, it's uh, six to nothing or, or something right. like that. Right. And any time you're in the, the postseason... And, you oh, know, the, the postseason. And they're anticipating, you know, game four of the NLCS, whatever it is, and there's two great it's pitchers. It's like the end game in chess. Once they start talking about a pitcher's duel, you know it's going to be 11 8, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's how it always goes. <laughs> right, right, right. 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 But, that's why, but that's why, but that's exactly why the statistics, I think, are important because over the whole season, it averages out. Over the whole season, maybe that's tautological, but over the whole season, the better team does yet, win most of the games. Not yet, every game. One not of every the things game. I, again, one of the things I love about baseball. When you consider that the, the season is currently 162 games, 162 games, Exhausting. and yet even then, it can sometimes come down to the very last game, yes. that the teams in the division can be tied, and even to the extent that they have to uh, schedule a 163rd game just to determine uh, uh, an outcome. That blows my mind. And, and I actually think that we're going to see more of that because... There was a period for much of baseball history, the inequalities in resources could be exploited more, and the inequalities in, in there was a much wider gap between the smart front offices and, the, and frankly, the stupid ones. And, and that, gap has, <laughs> that gap has closed. And, and much more of baseball now is about luck, break, the way the balls bounces, the, the standard deviation, the, everyone has regressed to the mean much more than even in the 70s or the 50s or the 20s. Okay, except maybe not the way the Houston Astros played this year. What do you think of the allegations that they were stealing the, the what are they called? Boy, this is becoming a baseball podcast, you know. We're, lo we're, we're, we're losing. Right. We're, we're, we've Thank departed you. substantially from the former. <laughs> no, but it's all in the mix, right? It's all. There's always a baseball podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, everything, everything's about baseball. One thing I, about, I just, could I say one more thing about baseball? You can, baseball sure. has provided us. Uh, the American ethos, if you will, with an entire vocabulary. You can say things like three strikes to somebody who's never even seen a baseball, and, and they yet, know it's an out, and they will know what you're talking I was about. At, yeah. I was at a yeah. you're yeah. out. That's good. I was at a briefing with an English diplomat in about 2003, and we'd had a series of meetings around an election in a foreign country. And we'd always, he and I always, would always chat informally afterwards, and I had used a few baseball terms. And in his last press conference, he said, and then they threw a curve ball. Yes. <laughs> and, and not only did he put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, but he made a gesture. A curve ball. That yes. had nothing to do with throwing a curve ball. Well, but, but if, if you're funny. doing, what's, what's the British game they play cricket, with? Cricket, I think. Cricket. Was he was doing a cricket. Well, I thought he was a sticky wicket. I a sticky know. wicket. Okay, okay. <laughs> Listen. We, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure people are kind of like, oh, I don't know, because I love baseball. I love this talk. But I want to have a drastic transition now. Let's talk about impeachment. Okay. Just, just real briefly. All okay. right. Well, that's so a curveball, right? A, that is that's a curveball curve there. Curve yeah. ball there. Now, now, Lincoln, we noted that you tweet about politics, and you write a lot about politics. I mean, go, go, go look up Lincoln Mitchell. I mean, it's, 
I, I tweet it at Lincoln Mitchell and I Instagram at Lincoln A. Mitchell. That's right. how you can follow So hashtag Lincoln Mitchell, uh, hashtag Mitchell Minute. Mitchell Minute, yes. So you can go there. And I thought we'd finish by having you give some feedback. So um, here's one. Yesterday you commented on the Senate hearing on the Inspector General's findings of the mishandling of the FBI of the Russian investigations. And I know how the Republicans are going to kind of slant this. But what, what's your take on it? Well, you know, this, this is a tricky one for me because I, 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 am dist I am, on the one hand, it is clear to me that if you read the Mueller report or have any common sense at all or are able to, just to read, if you're literate, that Russia, that the Kremlin and the Trump campaign were at the very least in communication during the 2016, and there's no real doubt about that. And that this election was sufficiently close that any one of 20 factors could have changed the outcome, and this may well have been one of them. Yep. Now, having said that, I also am not comfortable. I mean, we all know that the FBI, historically, often aiming at people on the left, has abused the law, has moved too fast on investigations, has cut corners. So that they did that here is kind of FBI business as usual, as it's been for a century. But the key finding is that the investigation itself wasn't politically motivated. And that's, you know, that's the critical finding. But the critical context for that is that the Republican response to this impeachment inquiry has not been to do, frankly, the easy thing, which is what Will Hurd did in the hearings a couple of weeks ago, and say, you know, the president screwed up. It doesn't seem to me to be an impeachable offense. Because once you say that, then you're admitting, you're not arguing the facts of the matter. You're taking a subjective position. Yep. And you know that 50 senators are, at least, you know, you only need 34, but you'll get at least 50 to say that in the Senate. Instead, what they've done is committed to a set of, uh, an edifice of a fantasy, right. you know, um, where the mortar is provided by Moscow. And, and that is such an odd and destructive decision to make in the context of a situation where we all know the outcome. We all know that he'll be acquitted by the Senate. Right? We knew that when Nancy Pelosi made this announcement. Wouldn't it be nice if it was otherwise? I have a number of things, and I, I urge everyone to go see um, hashtag uh, Mitchell Minutes. There's a lot of things, but uh, we're, we're kind of running out of time. There's a party coming in yes. to get parts on this porch. And Not so our party. Somebody else. I'm going to go to one thing. I think you tweeted about this. And that's on whether Trump, and I call him Trump, that's his real name, yeah. uh, will cede power when he, when he loses. I've been writing about this extensively. Oh, you have been. Okay. Extensively. And I've written for in the Daily News about this. I've written in USA Today about this. Um, I've been saying since the week after the election in 2016, he won't leave office if he loses. How could that be? That is, that, that is and, and, and then people said I was crazy, and fewer and fewer people say I'm crazy. How can that be? Okay, so can we do a little, um, I'm going to, excuse my being an academic here for a second, but I want to ask you a multiple choice quiz. Okay. All right? All right. Imagine you are watching CNN or whatever on election night at 11.01 p.m. here in New York, 8.01 p.m. on the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, and California go blue, and they say we can now project the winner is, you know, pick your nominee, Sanders, Biden, whatever, uh, Buttigieg, Buttigieg, Warren, right. whomever, doesn't matter, 312 electoral votes, right? Okay. Big check mark, big picture. Now, the next tweet from Donald Trump. A, congratulations, Mayor Pete, Senator, Vice President Biden, whomever, on a hard-fought campaign. I, no. I look forward to working with you on a peaceful transition. This is what makes America great. Or B, do not believe fake news CNN, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Which one? B. Now, this will occur in the context of the next year 
where the Republican talking points about illegal voting will increase, right? Democrats cheating, illegal voting, all of that. Then, within 12 hours of that happen, happening, are Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell tweeting, A, come on, Mr. President, we know who the real winner is, we have to have a peaceful transition, this is America, or we must look into election fraud, this is a, this, it's option B. And then CNN and the New York Times don't refer to the election as stolen. They refer to it as disputed and controversial. Jeez. And it goes that's, to the that's, and, and the reason Supreme Court. For, the reason, right. Again. And that's why it's so important to have Brett Kavanaugh there. Of course. And the reason for this is that if Donald Trump loses, he does not spend his life going to baseball games and doing watercolors like George W. Bush or, you know, making movies and, and running a foundation like Barack Obama. It is legal trouble and possibly time for him and the five people he cares about. The Republican end, when the Republican Senate acquits on impeachment, they are empowering him and encouraging him to do this. What they are saying is, we will let you get away with anything. That's the only way this can, the only way this doesn't go this way is if one, he wins, which could happen, I mean, you know, such as it is, and two, he loses by such a big margin. But I don't see, and then you say what happens, and people will say, oh, the military will, won't allow it. This isn't a Tom Clancy novel, right? The military is neither marching him out or protecting him. Will he incite and encourage violence? Absolutely. Will we actually arrive in civil war? No, because that's not what the 21st century conflict looks like. Will there be civil conflict, civil unrest? Very probably. Oh right? So you know, I think oh you're my overlooking. God, that's uh, really dark. I think you're overlooking one or one or two things. One of them is the likelihood, if you will, of foreign interference, specifically hacking. Uh, rigging the ballot yeah. boxes, or possibly, too, some kind of October surprise of a, a drastic magnitude, some kind of attack or nuclear accident or uh, other environmental well, thing that uh, prevents the election from going forward. And this is in the planning stages already, and no doubt there are, there are forces at work trying to affect this. Um, and I continue the Trump uh, yeah, and presidency. And I think I think maybe we need to re uh, re meet on the night of the election, that would be and we great. can sit here oh. and we <laughs> could uh, <laughs> we can see if these predictions come out. It sounds awful. Michael Cohen has already told us this is what is going to happen because he said it in, in yes. his hearings. Yes, he I mean, said, well, "Be careful. He's not going to give up power." He 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 won't. And and and, and I mean, I, I don't mean like this is a pet issue of mine because I was really one of the first people out of the box and I was pitching this to, to newspapers saying you're crazy we won't print that in 2017 now I think it's, it's, it's people don't even blink at it well wow. because of the excesses of this uh, this administration people don't blink at anything right. any longer and 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 my 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 central view is that this was all I didn't see this unfolding any other way right this is how it had to go given who he is given given that this is a, the goal of the Trump administration is, is two, two related goals. Steal as much money as possible and stay out of jail. And to do that, they have to stay in power. So, Alan and I want to thank Lincoln <laughs> for his We're bringing it to an end. Yeah. Lincoln <laughs> Mitchell for joining us to talk about, <laughs> yes, about his new book on San Francisco in 1978. And David Bachrock for sharing his love of the team, the Yankees. Um, by the way, David, we heard that your team has paid megabucks for pitcher Jarrett Cole. Okay. Our son is very excited. Yeah. Big Yankee fan. He's, he's totally... Like, he he thinks it's cool. You won't but he that. keeps seeing in the lineups and how, you know, the great players and thinking it's going to be like this perfect... <laughs> 
yeah. team and yeah. we'll we thought see. that last year and then uh, half of them got injured or more yes at the beginning of 2019 and yet it still worked out which is yeah. another reason why we love baseball that's right yeah 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 so that's it for bar crawl radio number 73 email us at barcrawlradio at gmail.com and let us know what you think about our programming and thank you thank you lincoln and david this is wonderful My name is Harrison Winston. I'm a um, neurobiology major. Been a Yankee fan my entire life. Being a a sports fan, you when you're young, you tend to pick uh, pick it, and usually usually has to do with the geography of where you are. Once you pick that team, it's it's all about sticking with them through the uh, good times and the bad times. There's a kind of rush that you get when your team is doing really well, and uh, it doesn't feel too good when your team's not doing really well. If you can learn to control that and, and not get too high or too low, it can be a very enjoyable experience. Kind of live and die with your team. In baseball, it's very easy for a team on any given day to lose, just as it is for them to win. So it's, all, it's really more about the overall season or even uh, multiple years where you have to uh, – kind of live with with what happens and just hope for the best it's almost like um you're tapping into the gambling gene or whatever you know you're gambling your emotions you're gambling the the idea that you might feel really bad uh, with the idea that you might feel really good so it's like a feeling of euphoria makes you feel good throughout the day throughout the week the bigger the win obviously the longer you might feel that euphoric feeling for instance if 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 the Yankees were to win the World Series, I'm sure I'd feel euphoric for months after that. And when they don't win, you try to, uh, like for me, I've been trying to focus more on another sports, which is the uh, my basketball team, the Nets. Um, so it's now it's kind of just trying to forget the fact that the Yankees didn't make it and just focusing on uh, another sports team and kind of riding with them. You know, it, it can be dangerous, I think, for people. I mean, it was for me, especially early in my life, as far as it letting it affect you too much. But if you can kind of find that even ground, you know, it's not really that important, then you can really enjoy, um, you know, whatever outcome may be and just kind of enjoy the experience of watching the game. Yeah, so for me, that's what uh, being a sports fan and a baseball fan is all about.